0: Chapter 11 of The Radio Gunner by Alexander Forbes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Intrigue and Mischief Throughout these days, Evans maintained vigilant and nerve-wracking watch over the personnel with a view to detecting any leakage of information by radio which might give the enemy a hint about the code. For more than one reason, he now began to contemplate with increasing uneasiness the incumbency of Commander Rich as head of the radio division of the Bureau of Engineering in Washington. When Captain Brigham had told Commander White the preceding August about Commander Rich's advice to him on the subject of the radio equipment on the flagship, White had, of course, carefully refrained from repeating the remarks of his chief to Evans. But when in the autumn he was relieved by Commander Elkins, White had explained the situation to his successor and told him how Brigham's attitude had been responsible for virtually putting the most important part of their radio equipment out of commission. In the course of his explanation, White had quoted Captain Brigham's remark about his conversation with Rich, which revealed the fact that this high official had actually encouraged the dismantling of apparatus whose value, though unknown to Brigham, was well understood by Elkins. In the course of the winter, Elkins placed ever-increasing confidence in Evans as they worked together in the nerve center of the fleet, One day, he told him of this remark of Captain Brigham's, which White had passed on to him. Elkins mentioned it as evidence of ultra-conservatism in the Bureau, constituting a difficulty with which they were obliged to reckon. To Evans, it appeared not merely as a troublesome obstacle, but as a cause of grave uneasiness. Another thing which enhanced this feeling was the fact that he had found several important pieces of radio apparatus recently shipped from the Navy test shop in Washington seriously defective. What was more, the defects did not appear to be such as could be ascribed to sheer carelessness of workmanship. They were in vital parts of the apparatus, always where most difficult to discover and most inaccessible and troublesome to remedy the frequency with which these conditions were found was greater than could be laid to the common perversity of complex apparatus. Yet nothing of this sort had been definite enough to arouse in him much more than a vague sense of uneasiness, nor to make him feel justified in mentioning his fears to either Elkins or Barton. One night, As he lay in his berth pondering the significance of these defects which kept coming to light, there flashed on his mind the recollection that when last in Washington, he had often seen Wellman going to see Commander Rich in his private office. At the time, this had not added much to his uneasiness about Rich, for... Being already convinced that Wellman was a spy, it seemed only natural that he should be assiduously cultivating the head of the radio division. But now it began to haunt him. The malignant look he fancied he had seen in Rich's face came back to him. At the time, he had persuaded himself that it was a trick of his imagination provoked by Peek. Now the memory of that look returned and would not be set aside. Late into the night, he tossed on his mattress, devoured by ominous conjectures. When sleep came at last, the face of Rich, its malignity horribly intensified, haunted his dreams. It was near the end of March. The preparations in the fleet were daily assuming more momentous import, and efficiency in the flagship's center of communication was more vital than ever. Radio gunner Long now arrived at Punta Delgada from Washington and presented himself aboard the flagship with orders from the Bureau of Engineering to make certain changes in the radio apparatus, changes which were the result of secret developments just made in the laboratories of the Bureau. Evans recalled having seen Long occasionally in the Bureau at Washington, though he had scarcely made his acquaintance. Now he received him with cordial attention and asked him all the news from Washington, showing a special interest in the new developments which Long had come to introduce. In this, he met a rebuff. Long answered his questions with generalities, evading any disclosure of the nature of the changes he was going to make. These were confidential, and his duty to the Bureau of Engineering constrained him from revealing their nature to anyone. It was nearing the noon hour when Long first began looking over the gear in the radio room in preparation for commencing alterations. Evans and the chief radio electrician were both in the radio room about their various duties and offered to help Long at his task. He declined their offers. The job he was going to do was one that he could manage better by himself. He spent a good deal of time getting out pliers and other tools and looking over them. He stopped to examine this and that piece of apparatus and altogether seemed to be very slow in getting to work. Eight bells struck and Evans asked Long if he wasn't coming down to lunch. I think I'll stay here and work, said Long. I'm not very hungry today. So Evans went to lunch, leaving Long alone in the radio room except for the operator on watch. He had not been gone two minutes, however, before he returned to get a notebook he had left there. Entering quickly, he saw Long rise hastily from behind one of the receivers at the sound of the opening door, and on his face an ugly scowl gave way rapidly to a look of utter indifference. The place where Long was at work was so concealed from the operator on watch that it was impossible for him to see anything of the nature of the changes Long was making without leaving the receiver at which it was his duty to listen. Evans remarked something about forgetting his notebook, fumbled for a minute among the papers on the table, then left again and went to his lunch. When next he returned half an hour later, Long was in a different part of the radio room, making some adjustments on the main transmitter, and took no notice at all of Evans as he entered. Evans sat down unconcernedly and looked over some recent dispatches, then began to engage Long in conversation. A few platitudes were exchanged and the atmosphere became a bit less tense, Evans began tinkering with some apparatus, and opening a drawer, took out a strip of polished metal and set it down on the bench before him, propped against the panel of a receiver. Looking intently at the panel, with his back to long, he asked in a casual voice, What do you think of Commander Rich as an authority on radio? The reflection in the metal strip revealed a sudden start and a quick glance at Evans, but the voice was casual enough as Long replied, Why, he's the greatest radio man we've got. Of course, I scarcely know him personally, but from all I've heard, I guess he heads the list, all right. Evans continued to tinker with some odds and ends on the bench in front of him and to examine the adjustments of the receiver, glancing now and then at the strip of metal. Long continued to kill time, fussing ineffectually over some wires. Evans then sat down comfortably in a chair with his feet up in another, and taking his slide rule out of his pocket, began to seek in it the answer to a mathematical riddle. He was determined not to leave the room now until Long had left it, and not then until he had done a bit of looking round. He made it evident that he was settling down to stay, But the slide rule told him nothing more erudite than that two times two equals four, and even that bit of erudition was quite lost on him, for his thoughts were tussling with ugly conjectures. An hour passed. Long kept as busy as he was able doing nothing, while Evans wielded his slide rule and once in a while scribbled a figure on a slip of paper. At last, Long said, Well, I guess I'll go to the machine shop and see if I can find some things I shall need tomorrow evans took no notice of him as he went out but as soon as the sound of his steps had died away he opened the door and looked out to be sure long was not still lurking nearby then shutting it again he hastened to examine the apparatus He soon satisfied himself that the only changes Long had made in the main transmitter were trifling readjustments whose only effect would be to impair its efficiency a little without making enough trouble to attract the attention of the operators. Clearly, that was not worth sending a man all the way from Washington to do. Evans then began examining the gear in the vicinity in which he had surprised Long when he first returned after his false departure for lunch. At first everything appeared to be wholly undisturbed, but on more careful examination he saw the tiny scratch of a screwdriver freshly made on the woodwork at the back of a receiver not much used in port, but on which much would depend in communicating with the fleet in action. Seizing a screwdriver, he hastily opened the receiver. Inside, everything appeared as it should be. Not a wire appeared displaced, but as he examined it more closely with a flashlight, something caught his eye. Two wires had been removed from their terminals and then adjusted so that they rested in contact with them and would continue to do so as long as the receiver was not disturbed. But their position was so unstable that the jarring of the ship underway was certain to shake them loose and leave their ends dangling in the air. The result of this would be that as long as the ship remained in harbor, the receiver would meet all tests without a flaw. But as soon as she put to sea, this important means of receiving information from the fleet would be crippled. The case against Long was proved as far as Evans was concerned, and he no longer had any doubts as to Commander Rich's complicity. He must see Barton at once. He looked at his watch and recalled that Fraser and Elkins had already gone ashore to meet Barton, and that in less than an hour these three were to start on a tour of inspection of the defenses on St. Michael's, Santa Maria, and Formigas, where were located the stations with the devices for detecting the approach of hostile craft to the outer line of nets. They would not return till late in the afternoon of the following day. It was just time for a boat with a Liberty Party to shove off for shore. There would not be another for an hour, and that would be too late. He must catch that boat. He said to the operator on watch and the chief radio electrician who had just entered, Keep your eyes open and notice the changes Mr. Long is making as far as you can. It will make it easier for him to teach you anything you will need to know about operating the set when he gets through. Then, leaving the room, he ran for all he was worth till he came on deck and, rushing to the starboard rail, looked over. There was a big motor sailor already loaded with sailors and away, swinging round to her course for the inner harbor. In a minute, she would be passing close to the ladder, hanging from the boom off the quarter deck. Now, every man aboard must ask permission to go ashore, and the officer of the deck is stationed at the gangway where the Liberty parties leave to grant such permission. But to a man performing such duties as Evans, requiring frequent excursions at all sorts of times, the mumbling of permission to leave the ship as he steps over the rail soon becomes an empty form and is relegated to the subconscious. Furthermore, Evans was quite accustomed to climbing down into the motor sailor from the boom in order to rig a temporary transmitter in her for testing some of the radio gear aboard the ship. For such a purpose, the formal permission to leave the ship was commonly waived or completely overlooked. Therefore, it was not wholly unnatural that when Evans came on deck, in his eagerness to convey his news to Barton, he simply forgot all about formalities and made for the boom. Running nimbly out on it, he slipped down the ladder. He hailed the coxswain of the motor sailor who swung in a few feet from his course to take him aboard. Ensign Coffey was officer of the deck at the time and witnessed the performance. This mode of leaving the ship was not for a moment to be countenanced. Seizing a megaphone, this irate officer called sharply to the coxswain and ordered him to return at once to the ship, and, when she was at the gangway, ordered Evans to come aboard, then sent the motor sailor once more on her way. "'What does this mean?' asked Coffey sternly. "'Why didn't you come and ask permission to leave the ship?' I came on deck after the boat had shoved off, answered Evans, now in the position of a schoolboy caught playing truant. I had an urgent errand on shore in connection with the radio apparatus, and as I had always been granted permission so regularly that I had come to take it as a matter of course, I simply didn't think of it, but in my haste made for the boat as I saw her go by the boom. Well, "'You won't take it as a matter of course anymore,' said Coffee. "'That sounds to me like a pretty thin excuse. "'Go to your room, and we'll look into this matter a little further.' Evans looked Coffey squarely in the eyes and said quietly, but earnestly, "'May I speak to the captain first? "'It is about a matter of great importance, and there's no time to lose.' "'I am officer of the deck,' answered Coffey with great dignity, "'and I represent the captain as far as you are concerned.' "'I have heard more than I wish to hear from you already. "'Go to your room.' The corporal of the guard and a quartermaster were standing by watching the scene. Evans hesitated a moment, wondering if there were any way of persuading Coffee that a real emergency existed, but the look of the man convinced him that he might as well talk to a pumpkin. A futile attempt would only do harm. Therefore, he went to his room and sat down to think matters over.' Ensign Coffey reported this incident to the executive officer of the flagship. Fraser and Elkins were already ashore with Barton, and the executive officer knew nothing of Evans and his duties, but the incident looked to him suspicious. He therefore started inquiries as to Evans's activities aboard the ship. When he learned that he had been making changes in the radio receiver, the exact nature of which was not fully understood by anyone else on the ship, He concluded that Evans required close watching and ordered him confined to his room with a guard at the door. Here was a nice situation. Fraser, Elkins, and Barton away for at least 24 hours. Evans locked in his room with little or no hope of release till they should return. In that time, Long might work untold damage to the radio room. There were hidden parts of the mechanism that he might break which would take weeks to repair. Worse than this, he might, by skillful questioning, draw valuable information from the operators. He might even get hold of secret codebooks and then, on the pretext of making tests on the transmitter, send out signals in a code of his own that would divulge vital information to the enemy worst of all he might find some clue to the secret of the stolen code and how by its aid the seven submarines had been lured to their doom then all that was hoped for by the further use of this talisman would be lost in his agony of apprehension evans became almost frantic he racked his brains to think of some line of action when the guard was placed at his door, he realized his utter helplessness to do anything to avert disaster. He knew that Barton had confided nothing of his unusual status to any of his colleagues in the Bureau of Intelligence. It would avail little to communicate with them even if he were able. After all, what was his status? A radio gunner, and nothing more. His private conversations with Barton were purely informal and gave him no official claim whatever to the consideration of other officers who were not acquainted with him. Still, if he could only have an interview with some officer in the Intelligence Bureau, he might be able to secure action. The emergency would justify his telling things it had hitherto been his rule to mention to none but Barton. With an effort at composure, he began talking to himself. This is a pretty pickle for me, he said aloud. I suppose they'll be having the intelligence officers out here to put me through the third degree. Then what'll happen? The guard heard, and when relieved, reported his remarks to the executive officer. Well, I think the best medicine for him is to let his fears come true, said this officer. He did not consider it worthwhile to do anything that evening, but early next morning he dispatched a note ashore requesting of the Intelligence Bureau an officer to investigate some suspicious conduct on the part of one of the ship's company. On receipt of this message, a young lieutenant attached to Commander Barton's office was sent aboard the flagship to make the investigation. Now Barton, as is the way of some intelligence officers, did not confide all he knew to his colleagues. No one in his entire force knew the nature of his relations with Evans. Few of them even knew of the latter's existence. Therefore, when the young lieutenant undertook his mission, he had wholly new ground to break. The night had been for Evans one of acute mental torture. Visions of Long's possible revelations to the enemy kept rising before him. Suddenly it flashed on his mind that Long was the same radio gunner that had been on the Sheridan when she was wrecked. Out of the depths of his subconscious memories came the words of the operator whom he had questioned on his visit to the wrecked ship in the Boston Navy Yard. He was here in the shack and sent me to get some wire or something from the main radio room an hour or so before we struck. What a dunce he had been not to think of it before! long had gone aboard the Sheridan to shift the position of that circular scale, after first showing the Navigator how well the radio compass worked, so that he would trust it. It wasn't his own idea either. Rich had sent him. Evans would bet his last dollar on that. Of course, it all fitted in with that gallant officer's denunciation of radio compasses in general to Mortimer as soon as the Sheridan went aground. What about the Gloucester Station? Ten to one, someone else had been tampering with that at the same time. Only there, he had had an opportunity to cover his tracks by putting things back in their proper adjustment afterwards, whereas on the Sheridan, the operator had stayed in the shack till they took to the boats and Long had had no chance to put the scale back where it belonged. Now this devil was here in the flagship's radio room at the behest of Rich with a free hand for nearly 24 hours, and Evans had lost his chance to trip him up. Never had he suffered so in all his life. At last, realizing the hopelessness of attempting to do anything before morning, he tried to sleep, but sleep would not come. Toward morning, he dozed occasionally, only to wake with a start as apprehension began to assume the reality of a dream image, and the nightmare sense that his fears had come true roused him again to full consciousness. In the morning when the young officer from the Intelligence Bureau arrived, he found Evans looking haggard and worn, with deep circles under his eyes, like one haunted by a bad conscience. Evans welcomed his arrival and endeavored to explain the situation, but the officer cut short his explanations, rebuked him sharply for trying to shift the blame to a fellow warrant officer. It soon became evident that his investigator had his mind made up that Evans was engaged in some plot and could not be made to listen to anything he said. Evans also became convinced that specific information about Long would not only be disbelieved, but was apt to be repeated indiscreetly to someone who would pass it on to others till Long would hear of it and be put on his guard. Clearly, then, the less he told this officer, the better. He therefore abandoned his attempt to explain matters and became as noncommittal as possible the intelligence officer sought to question Evans concerning his activities aboard the ship. All he could elicit from him was that he had been sent by the Bureau of Engineering to look after the efficiency of the radio apparatus in the fleet and to effect whatever repairs were needed to make it do what was wanted of it. More detailed questions brought out only technicalities that he did not understand. He tried frightening him into making confessions, but Evans Equanimity remained unruffled. The lieutenant was stumped and was debating what his next move should be when Evans said, Shall you see Commander Barton when you go ashore? Yes, why? answered the other, taken aback. If you don't mind, I should be grateful if you would tell him that I should like very much to see him as soon as possible. You have my name? I have your name, said the young lieutenant, astonished. Perhaps you'll see more of Commander Barton than you want. Here was a bit of cool effrontery the like of which he had never seen. What could it mean? Perhaps it might be a clue, but how to interpret it was beyond him. Perhaps he had better report his interview to Commander Barton and see if he could make anything of it. First, he went to the executive officer and told him that the case was very puzzling, that he thought he had made a little progress, but had best confer with Commander Barton before going further. It was not till late that afternoon that Barton returned to headquarters in Punta Delgada. As soon as he arrived, the young lieutenant who had interviewed Evans reported the whole story to his chief. Commander Barton listened gravely and at the end said, You did quite right to come back and report to me. I'll go aboard and look into it myself." Barton lost no time getting aboard the flagship and down to Evans' room. He dismissed the guard and, entering, found Evans in a state of mind which showed him that a situation of no ordinary sort had arisen. Evans hastily told him what had happened and mentioned briefly his reasons for believing that Commander Rich was at the bottom of the plot, including what he knew of Long's part in the Sheridan affair. Barton listened attentively and thought a moment. "'Sometime I'll tell you something else about that Sheridan business,' he said. "'But now the thing to do is to get this man long, locked up at once. "'Do you suppose you could get some useful information by keeping him under observation a while "'without letting him know he's under arrest?' asked Evans. "'We might do that. Anyway, we must be about it. Wait here till I see Fraser. Frazier and Elkins had returned to the flagship before Barton had come aboard, but the executive officer had not deemed it worthwhile telling the chief of staff about Evans' conduct and subsequent confinement. Barton now explained to Frazier what had happened, still not intimating that Evans was in the habit of having secret conferences with him, but merely putting his actions on the ground of his sense of the importance of reporting what he had learned to intelligence headquarters in the absence of Elkins. Evans was sent for and explained to Fraser in detail what had happened in the radio room. It was then decided that Fraser should tell Long that he was wanted for certain important duties at intelligence headquarters and should send him ashore with Barton. Long was found in the radio room examining some of the newer apparatus, but apparently not meddling with it at the moment. He was told that his services had been requested by the Intelligence Bureau and that the Chief of Staff desired him to get his personal effects and go ashore at once with Commander Barton, who was waiting for him. At headquarters, he was given supper and then shown to his quarters. He was to sleep in a room with another warrant officer, and in the morning his new duties would be explained to him. He turned in early and through the night sentries from concealed positions kept watch on the door and window of his room. In the meantime, on board the flagship, Evans hastened to the radio room to ascertain, if possible, what mischief Long had been up to. He questioned the operators who had been on watch, avoiding any implication that he suspected mischief, merely putting his questions as if interested only in the amount of progress made. In this way, he was able to get a preliminary idea as to which pieces of apparatus he had best examine for evidence of tampering. He also contrived, without arousing their curiosity, to question the operators further as to Long's activities. Had he tested any of the transmitters? Yes, he had sent signals with considerable power for nearly half an hour. Had he called any station in doing so? Apparently not. He seemed to be just testing the gear and sending blank signals. Anyway, he had not made use of any of the codes. All the code books had been locked up all the time. This latter news, at least, was good. But what were the blank signals that Long had sent? This was now the main question, and Evans saw no way to answer it. Before Barton went ashore with his unwitting prisoner, he and Evans had agreed that no time should be lost in warning Mortimer of Rich's probable complicity in the plot. Use your special method of reaching the secretary, Barton had said. We have no means as prompt and as free from the danger of leakage as that. So now, before waiting to make a thorough search for damage to the extensive array of apparatus in the room, Evans merely assured himself that a certain transmitter was in working order and sat down to make one of his periodical tests of its efficiency. It will be recalled that two civilian experts in the Bureau of Engineering, Tompkins and Rand by name, were the men whom Evans had charged Mortimer to keep ever on the job to apprise him of such messages as Evans might send. On this particular evening in Washington, Tompkins had the duty. At a late hour that night, the following message came into his hands. We have evidence suggesting that the man I warned you against last spring is involved in treason. Watch him closely. E. Tompkins telephoned at once to Mortimer's house to ask if he could see him, but was told that the secretary had gone to bed very tired. He decided to wait till morning. The next day, he went early to the secretary's office, but was told that Mortimer had not yet arrived. He therefore returned to his own office in the Bureau of Engineering to attend to some business. As soon as he felt sure the secretary would be in his office, he set out again to deliver his message. Now, during the night while Evans was confined to his room under guard, Long had asked many questions of the operators on watch in the radio room. Among other things, he learned that Evans, not infrequently, sent dummy messages to test the transmitter. It was after he had learned this that Long did the same thing himself. Within two hours, Commander Rich in Washington had received a slip of paper with the following words written on it. E has been sending out signals. Watch for delivery to SEC-L. When Tompkins left his office in quest of Mortimer, he was confronted by Commander Rich. "'I understand you are looking for the secretary this morning,' he said. "'You must understand that no one in the Bureau is permitted to communicate with anyone except through his immediate superior. If you have anything to communicate to the secretary, you must do so through me.' "'I understood,' replied Tompkins, "'that as a civilian employee that rule did not apply to me. I have merely an unofficial message for the secretary.' As long as you are working in this division of the Bureau, you are under my orders, said Rich. If you have a message for the secretary, give it to me, and I will see that it is delivered promptly. Tompkins did not know against whom Evans had warned Mortimer, and had no reason to suspect Rich of anything more than a desire to assert his authority. Yet he knew that he should entrust this message to no one, but should deliver it in person. He therefore replied, It is the secretary's wish that I should deliver this message to him myself. It is the secretary's wish that discipline should be maintained in the department and that orders should be obeyed. It is by his authority that everyone in this division of the Bureau is under my orders. You will therefore hand over the message to me. I am afraid I cannot do so without the express authority of the secretary, replied Tompkins. A dark flush of anger appeared on Rich's face, but he controlled himself and took another tack. See here, he said, I understand about these confidential messages. You are making an unnecessary fuss over nothing. The secretary wants me to keep things going through the regular channels as far as possible and cut out some of the irregularities that are apt to appear if we get too slack about the regulations. That's all. However... To set your mind at rest, I'll get him on the telephone and let him reassure you himself. Come into my room while I call him. Tompkins followed Rich into his private office where Rich sat down at his desk and took up the telephone receiver. Give me Secretary Mortimer, he said, then in a few seconds. Mr. Secretary, good morning. Do you recall speaking to me about stiffening up the regulations and seeing that all communications went through the proper channels? Well, Mr. Tompkins, one of our expert radio aides, has a message for you that he wants to deliver in person. He has scruples about entrusting it to me. I thought you might like to reassure him yourself. He's right here. Rich then handed the telephone to Tompkins, who was answered by a voice that he recognized clearly as Mortimer's, saying, That's all right, Tompkins. Give Commander Rich the message. I think it's a better way. It will excite less notice if you don't keep coming to my office there seemed now to be no doubt that he must do as he was told. So he drew from his pocket the sealed envelope containing the message and handed it to Commander Rich, who received it graciously, saying, You see, the secretary and I are in perfect understanding about all this. You need have no fears. His manner was both authoritative and reassuring, Yet, as Tompkins left the room, he felt a qualm of uneasiness at leaving the message behind him. He contemplated talking the affair over with Rand, but their duties kept them in the midst of other people during the day, and no good opportunity to do so appeared. Half an hour after Tompkins left his message with Rich, a messenger from the Bureau of Engineering called at Mortimer's office and asked to see the secretary, saying he had an urgent message. He was shown in, handed a sealed envelope to Mortimer, and withdrew. Mortimer opened the envelope and read with amazement the words, Recall Frazier to Washington at once. Urgent. E. He examined the handwriting carefully. Surely it was that of Tompkins, but why had not Tompkins delivered it in person? He reached for his telephone and asked for the Bureau of Engineering. Getting the Bureau, he asked for Tompkins, but his call was answered by Commander Rich. Mr. Secretary, good morning, he said. Mr. Tompkins received a confidential message for you this morning, just as he was leaving the office in response to a telegram saying that his wife, who is out of town, had been taken seriously ill. The poor man was distracted, for he felt that he must deliver this message to you in person. Yet he hadn't a moment to spare to catch his train. I told him to go to his wife and promised I would deliver the message to you at once. So I sent it round by a trustworthy messenger. It was just as he handed it to me with the seal unbroken. Mortimer pondered the question, could there be a mistake? Evans had assured him that his system was as proof against error as was humanly possible, safeguarded by a method of double-checking to ensure it against the misspelling of names. It had never failed. And there before him was this surprising message in Tompkins' own hand. Why should Fraser be recalled? There must be a good reason. Having excluded every possible source of error he could imagine, he concluded that he had best maintain his faith in Evans, who had never yet failed him. He therefore arranged to have orders cabled to Punta Delgada, detaching Captain Frazier to return immediately to Washington. That afternoon, at the end of the day's work, Tompkins had just arrived at his rooms when he was called to the telephone. Again, He recognized Secretary Mortimer's voice. Mr. Tompkins, I want to see you about a matter of great importance. I will send my car to your rooms to bring you to my house. The car will be there in about 10 minutes. Please be ready for it. In 10 minutes, a limousine drew up in front of the door. The chauffeur wore a smart livery. Seated in the tonneau was another man. Tompkins stepped in and sat down beside him. Good evening, said the man. I wonder what this conference is about. The secretary merely asked me to come to his house. I'm in the electrical manufacturing business. The car started rapidly and soon turned into an unfrequented street. There it slowed down. Two men ran out from the sidewalk, jumped on the running board, and the car sped on. One of them got into the tonneau beside Tompkins and instantly seized his hands while the electrical manufacturer threw a gag over his mouth. He was also blindfolded so that thenceforth he knew not where they were going. For seven hours the car sped on through the night and toward the end of the journey the sound of the engine told him it was climbing a considerable grade. The road became rougher, then rougher still. At last, sometime after midnight, the car stopped, and Tompkins was taken out and conducted through an overgrown wood road for some distance to an abandoned lumberman's shack where the gag and blindfold bandage were removed, and he found himself surrounded by six armed men. He had not the remotest idea where he was, but evidently it was far from Washington. The hut, in reality, was in the vastness of the Shenandoah Mountains. It would have been a simple matter to seal his lips for all time, but Rich had instructed that instead he be carefully guarded in the hope that by appropriate treatment useful information might be extracted from him. And here, let us leave him. The next morning early, before anyone else had arrived at the Bureau, Commander Rich was in his office, pacing up and down, Presently, there was a knock at the door, and a man with a sallow face entered. How about it, said Rich quickly. They got him off, all right. I've just been talking with Calvani by long-distance phone. He had just got down out of the mountains and says they've lodged the beggar where you told him to. Good, said Rich, and lit a cigarette. I wonder how many more of these secret messengers there are knocking round the works, he continued. Then, scowling, added, "'We haven't got to the bottom of all this business yet. "'I'd give anything to know where that man Herringham disappeared to "'and what he's up to. "'Why in hell didn't you get the dope on him "'while you were there in London?' "'I couldn't shadow both him and Evans when they separated,' "'was the answer, and I thought Evans was the more important. "'Remember hereafter,' muttered Rich savagely, "'that I like results a whole lot better than excuses.' And with that, he sat down at his desk and waved the sallow man away. At Punta Delgada, Evans, having sent his message of warning about Rich, proceeded to examine all the apparatus which the information of the operators led him to suspect that Long had molested. Considerable damage had been done, always of the same sort as that which he found in the receiver. The man certainly was ingenious. Inaccessible parts had been broken or damaged in a manner calculated to do the maximum harm with the minimum symptoms, so that it would be a long time before the operators suspected that anything was wrong, and longer still before they could trace the trouble to its cause. He was relieved to find that, troublesome as was the breakage, the worst of it could be repaired within a week. What bothered him most now was the question, what and to whom had Long been signaling in his half-hour's test. His worst fear was that Long might have discovered some clue to the secret of Wellman's stolen codebook and passed it on to his Confederates. End of Chapter 11